From the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, Inside Elections. Host Leif Anderson, president of the NAE, talks with Nathan Gonzalez, editor and publisher of the Rothenberg and Gonzalez Political Report. Let's join in. I'm Leif Anderson, president of NAE, here with Nathan Gonzalez. Nathan leads the Rothenberg and Gonzalez Political Report, a nonpartisan newsletter covering the U.S. House, Senate, Governor, and presidential campaigns. He's been with the report for nearly 15 years. Nathan is a contributing writer for Roll Call and founder of politicsinstereo.com, which features state-based political news. And you will regularly see Nathan on Meet the Press, NBC Nightly News, The News Hour on PBS, C-SPAN's Washington Journal, CNN, Fox News, and others, always as an expert on political races. Most important, Nathan is married to Heather, the NAE's Vice President and COO. So it's probably an understatement, Nathan, to say that you are very busy these days as you engage in the next election. Yeah, it seems like uh, there used to be an off year, but there's uh, there's no such thing as an off year anymore. So it, it keeps us it keeps me on my toes, and it keeps us on our toes with continued uh, political news. Well, evangelicals are good news people, so we want to bless others. There are lots of ways of doing this, including through politics and voting. But sometimes, with all the media going on, it's hard to know what's actually going on, and it might be I don't know the sociologist in me, but I'm always fascinated by how elections work and how do analysts predict election outcomes. So you're the expert on this. Thanks for the opportunity to look inside of elections and politics. And I want to start out by asking, how did you get into this most unusual occupation that is yours? <laughs> well, uh, I know that God God has a plan, but I, I really kind of stumbled into it. Um, I'd always been interested in writing I was the when I was a kid, uh, my friend would sell lemonade at the lemonade stand, and I would sell my Star Wars stories that uh, that I had written. And so I'd always been interested in in writing. Uh, but my senior year of uh, when I was an undergrad at, at Vanguard and University in California, I came to Washington D.C. Uh, through something called the American Studies Program, and I really caught the political bug. You know, we, I spent half my time that semester in classes and actually uh, meeting, getting to know Heather, which was a very uh, important part of my life. But also, I interned in the White House press office. Now, this was a, a few presidents ago, but I think just being there and seeing the reporters, the White House press corps, uh, I really struck a chord with me. And uh, and so I, I figured out this is what politics is what I want to write about, and it started to give me a focus. Um, my first job outside of uh, my first job out of college was at CNN. Uh, it was fantastic. I was working for the, the political section of the website. But then there was a, a, a merger between AOL and Time Warner, and things got messy. I got moved over to the television side. And I figured out that uh, I wanted to get back to writing longer pieces. Uh, so my first boss at CNN knew, uh, used to work for a gentleman named Stuart Rothenberg. Uh, she knew that he was looking for someone new. She knew that I was looking for something, a new position. She said, the two of you should talk, and really the rest is history. That was over 14, almost 15 years ago, and, uh, and I just 
I'm so grateful to find something that uh, I enjoy, get paid to do something that that I love to do, but also have the flexibility to to carve out time for for family as well. But I, the bottom line is, I really didn't grow up as a political junkie. I didn't come from a particularly political family, but I kind of found my found my calling uh, through a couple different doors. You sound a little bit like a candidate when you start out with a lemonade stand and then you have come to where you are now. But anyway, tell us exactly exactly what do you do? How do you analyze people? How do you figure this out? Well, I think even though I've been doing this for a little while, I think some of my friends and family are asking that very same question. They're still trying to figure it out. The, what we do is we look at we try to identify the most competitive House and Senate races, also races for governor and some presidential, but really what are the most competitive House and Senate races? Look at the candidates, who's running, look at the political climate, the partisanship of these districts and states, and try to figure out who's going to win and, and which party is going to be in the majority. Uh, and, and ultimately, how does that impact the, the majority is how is that going to impact policy? How is it going to impact the president's ability to get a legislative agenda through? So uh, it's it's handicapping. We we are trying to you know give our readers a look behind the scenes and look ahead into these campaigns and try to figure out what's going on because a lot of our readers are making investments in these in these races and they want to know uh, what's the most important what are the most important places that can have an impact on on Washington in, in the future congresses all right my impression and you can correct this is that you interview a lot of candidates many of them very early in their political aspirations and as a result of that you have met and privately interviewed practically every politician either in Washington or wanting to go to Washington am I getting it right uh, we that's one of my favorite parts of the job is we interview candidates uh, we interview usually between about 150 and 200 every election cycle so if you add that all up together I've probably topped the thousand the thousand or so mark and it's it's fascinating to meet people from all over the country with very different ideologies and worldviews um, but they all have the same general goal of wanting to do wanting to serve their constituents and, and serve the country. But it, it, it's ranged from, I remember meeting a, a state senator named Barack Obama in September of 2002. Now, if there's any uh, Obama historians that are listening, they'll know that that means that he was it was over two years before his United States Senate run in Illinois that he was already coming to Washington, starting to make the rounds and put pieces in place. Uh, he's probably on on one end of the spectrum in terms of the quality of candidate. I've met with uh, met with others that are that aren't quite up to the, uh, aren't quite up to the same to that same tier. But it's uh, but it's a it's a fascinating and that's really just one part of the process. I mean, we're I, I kind of feel like my job is to take in gather as much intelligence as possible, sort through what matters and what doesn't, and try to present it to our readers in a way that they can they can handle and they can digest. Um, because they don't have the time uh, to sort to sort through all the spin. When you interview people who are novices, do any of them ever say, "Yeah, well, someday I'm going to be president of the United States," or do you ever walk out of the room thinking, "Wow, someday he or she could be president of this country"? Uh, well, let's let's take Obama for example. In in that race, uh, he was impressive. I mean, he was serious, he was thoughtful, but there was no there wasn't a thought in my mind that this, that, that he could be president of the United States. In part because I thought, well, first of all, no one named Barack Obama is going to go very far in the political world. And 
in that U.S. Senate race, he wasn't even the favorite. There was a, a gentleman named Blair Hull who was running, uh, and through the course of that campaign in the Democratic primary, his divorce records were unsealed. He allegedly uh, put his wife through a coffee table. Uh, if you're wondering what that does to your polls, uh, they go the polling numbers they go down, <laughs> and so there were a lot of steps. He was a, Obama was impressive, but he had a lot of breaks along the way. Uh, but sure, there are, there are candidates who who stand out. Most of them aren't. They won't vocalize a desire to be president, but you could tell that there's a there's a a desire there. I mean, I just met with this cycle. I've already met with two 25 year old kids, uh, and I call them kids because they're younger than I am. But I, I think that they believe that they're going to be president of the United States someday. But but they they have a long way to go. You should get their autograph now. So let's talk about Iowa. Uh, I live in Minnesota, and Iowa's our neighboring state, and we don't see it much on the news or think much about Iowa, uh, except every four years or every couple of years as they ramp up for it. How important is the Iowa caucus, uh, the New Hampshire primary, some of these uh, early turnouts in determining what happens in a presidential race? Well, they're not. Um, first of all, I'm amazed that they continue to that they have that platform <laughs> that the party hasn't tried to diversify and give other states an opportunity. I mean, they really, they really have the monopoly on this, and they, they, there's substantial business involved when you have every media outlet, uh, even in the world, coming to to watch these candidates go door to door in in Des Moines. But um, they are, they're important, but they're not necessarily great predictors. So we just have to look at not too far back to know that, you know, we do we. We don't have a president, Mike Huckabee, or we don't have a president, Rick Santorum, uh, the past two winners of the Iowa caucuses. Uh, we know that you know, John McCain won New Hampshire uh, a few cycles ago, and he didn't end up, uh, he didn't even win winning the nomination, the, the cycle that he did that. But I think they're important because it starts to narrow the field. We're already seeing, uh, you know, and I think we're seeing that this cycle as well, where we have this large batch of candidates, but once you get to Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, the field starts to narrow because there's a feeling that if you can't if you can't muster some support in those early states, then it's not going to work out in the long run. So does that mean you're ready to make predictions on who will be the next president of the United States? Sure, I, I have it. I have it all figured out, uh, and the answer is it depends. <laughs> uh, I, I think we, uh, you know, I've said for. Uh, I've said for a number of months now that I think that the nominee was going to come out of uh, one of three, the Republican nomination was going to come out of one of three people, uh, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump. And, and I still think that that, uh, that that's going to be the case. Now, who's going to be the next president uh, brings in a whole other number of factors. I, mean, I, I still believe that Hillary Clinton is going to be the Democratic nominee. But the general election is going to, I think it's going to be a wide open race. And part of it is that how this president, President Obama, how he leaves office and how Americans feel about uh, the last eight years is going to set the foundation for the election. It's going to put voters in a certain mood. If they like where we've, what he's done over the last eight years, then they're going to be, they're not going to want to shake things up. Uh, but if they don't like what he's done over the last eight years, they're going to be in the mood for change, and they're going to be looking for an, a candidate uh, who who can who can take the country in a different direction. So I think I think we have a long way I think we have a long way to go. 
it seems that recent and current elections are, are more extreme in their political differences. I know back in the 1860s they were having fistfights on the, the floors of Congress, but um, is, is it more polarized now or have we just forgotten about what past history was? I, I think you know, partisanship is not new, polarization is not new. I mean, we have two two distinct political parties with very different views. I think part of the part of what's changed is the prolifer the proliferation of media in media outlets. The partisanship might be a little bit more uh, might be a little bit more extreme, but you have so many more reporters and media outlets uh, covering it and and going to the most extreme characters of each party and giving them, putting them in front of a camera or giving them a microphone. And, uh, and I think that that is the, the media, media consumption and the polarization of the media, I think it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that then we then have a polarizing electorate and, and a polarizing Congress. Uh, but to pin down who, where it starts and, and who's, the, who's responsible, I think gets to be a difficult difficult case but and I come from the standpoint that I don't think partisanship is necessarily a bad thing I don't think people have to all agree but I think it's how we disagree that's important and and there's a whether it's the comment threads online or, or Twitter or different there's there's different avenues where people feel this strange freedom to say things in a way that really they wouldn't say to someone's face and I think that that's that's part of the issue. Everybody's in it when it's a presidential election but when it comes to uh, districts of the House or the Senate seats we, we all tend to be uh, identified with specifically where we live so uh, you specialize in state races how do you think the current election cycle is going to change the House and the Senate? Well, uh, I think the the races for the House and Senate are, are very important. They don't get the most attention, but they will. The whoever controls Congress and the and the makeup of Congress will help determine how the next president will be able to govern. What legislative agenda will be able to get passed or will get blocked, and that will depend on who's in the majorities. That being said, uh, House and Senate races are going this cycle are going to be played out. Uh, under the shadow, in the shadow of the presidential race. And what I mean is that the presidential nominees, once they, once that's sorted out, will become the face of each party, for better or worse. And the reason, and we have our, our ratings online of which House races are toss-ups or leaning Republican or leaning Democratic, but you could probably put an asterisk ne next to those ratings because if, if, uh, Ted Cruz is the Republican nominee. That is a, a very different election than if Marco Rubio is a Republican nominee because they have different ways that they're campaigning, different constituents that they are uh, that they're trying to, to voters that they're trying to appeal to, and so that that's going to that's the big uh, that's the big unknown piece when we're looking at these House and Senate races. If if everything is sort of an even, if there's not a wave in one direction or another. I think that the Senate is still up for grabs. Republicans might be the narrow favorites to hold on to the Senate in an even election. I think Republicans will hold the House. But there's there's a possibility that 
the, the election breaks significantly against one party or the other, and, and we see one party being able to control those two branches of government. So it's sort of the down-ballot effect that who you vote for for president is going to influence who you vote for for the rest of the ballot. Is that right? And I think I think that's right. And I think that what we have seen in, in more recent cycles is the is a downturn in people splitting their tickets. You say, okay, well, I want a Republican for president, but I want this Democrat for the Senate or, or this Democrat for the House. We're, we're seeing a, uh, a, de a decline in that. And, and really, it's, it's if you're a Republican, you're likely to vote Republican up and down the ballot unless there's a, an extraordinary circumstance or an extraordinary candidate that makes you think differently about the party that you don't really agree with. For most of us, the mapping of congressional districts is confusing. It seems to vary state by state. It changes with each uh, decadal census. Uh, how does this work? How, how is a congressional district set? Well, we could probably do three podcasts on congressional redistricting, but we uh, the goal of the goal when these congressional districts are being drawn is that first of all, each representative would represent roughly the same amount of people. Right now, that's about 700,000 people per congressional district. So that is that's the that's the initial that's the the framework. But then how districts are drawn, it goes state by state. In a majority of states, the state legislature is in charge of drawing the lines. And that becomes a uh, complicated because state legislatures are often full of people who believe they can be members of Congress. So you have state legislators drawing districts with not only their party in mind, but sometimes their own self-interest in mind, thinking, well, if I draw it over here and include this town and this city, I can run for this seat two years or four years later. And so uh, there are a uh, there are a few states that have nonpartisan redistricting commissions or bipartisan redistricting commissions. And but I think those are they have mixed results so far depending on what what you want the outcome to be. And what I mean by that is in a state like Arizona. Arizona is kind of viewed as a as an example because they have a nonpartisan redistricting commission. When you look at the Arizona delegation, all but one of the Republicans in the delegation are members of the House Freedom Caucus, which is uh, the most conservative part of the House Republicans. And so, for those people who said, "Well, if we if everyone had nonpartisan redistricting, then we wouldn't have as many members on the extremes of the ideological spectrum," but Arizona, I think, is evidence that no, that's not necessarily that's not necessarily the case. And it, Part of it comes back to what you mentioned earlier that uh, Americans we tend to live uh, with people that are like-minded, roughly the same socioeconomic class, the same political views, same views on social issues, and so that that's one of the reasons why we have we have polarized districts that are either very Republican or Democratic because people tend to live in like-minded communities. Well, sometimes it seems to me to be kind of bizarre, the districting. There's a member of Congress that I was talking with, and his district was changed, and he drew for me a picture of his district. And the top of the district was basically a straight line with one little bump in it. And I said, what's that bump? And he said, that's my house. So the, the district line was drawn in a way that would keep him in that district. Does this happen often? Oh, that, that's become, yeah, I mean, the parties, depending on, 
it's important for the parties to control to have the majorities in the state legislators and state legislatures when these uh, after at the end of each census because that's when redistricting and reapportionment occur and when the state legislatures start to draw these maps they're starting to draw they want to draw them to maximize the political benefit they want to get as many seats win as many seats out of out of each state as possible but the way they do that is to carefully craft them and they can do it on a house by house basis. I mean, and they go and, and you might be in the same neighborhood, but on one side of the street you're in the fifth district, but on the other side of the street you're in the sixth district, and, and that's because they're trying to, they're trying, they're looking at the voters in these in these communities. They know how they voted in the past. They to try to examine where what they're going to vote like in the future, and draw these districts with. With a, a specific intention and, and party in mind, so it can get very creative. I mean, my kids can probably draw uh, more compact districts uh, than, than what you see in some of these states. So the next census is 2020. So the next time it'll be between 2020 and 2022. So the next election that'll be affected will be 2022, right? Correct. Uh, so 20, the 2020 elections are important. Um, to for to gain the majorities and actually some of the 2018 gubernatorial races are important because in most states not all the governor has a, a veto power so you want to be able to control the legislatures and the in the governorship in order to have the, the pen it's, they don't really draw it with a pen anymore it's these highly specialized computer programs but to be able to draw these these lines the, the 2018 and 2020 elections are, are critical because the new lines will be in place by 2022 all right, let me tie this to your newsletter. So I receive, I'm a subscriber to the Rothenberg and Gonzalez Political Report, and each week when I look at it on the front page, you list House and Senate races, and you divide them up. So I have it in front of me, and it says pure toss-up, or lean Democratic, or lean Republican, or safe Democrat, safe Republican. Does that mean that if I'm a Democrat in a Republican district, or vice versa, does it really matter who I vote for because it's determined by the districting? Well, I think the focus, uh, you're right, that we only have about 30, I think we have 32 or so House districts on our ratings chart that we consider competitive. And by competitive, we mean that either that either side could win in a general election, either party. But the, in the other 380 or so districts, those districts are important, but the election—it's a different election. It's about the primary, and if you're in a safe Republican or safe Democratic district, then and you want to have a voice in what kind of member is in Congress, then you need to be voting in the primary because that's essentially the general election. The general election is just a formality in in 300 plus districts. So, making sure that you are, are voting in a primary is uh, is critical. Now you'll say, well, what if I'm a Republican, a Democratic? Uh, in a Democratic district that is a closed primary, only Democrats can vote in the primary. Then it gets a little more a little more complicated. But and to those people, I would say, make sure you vote in local elections because Congress is full of state senators, state reps, city council people, uh, mayors, local officials. Th those are the that's the minor league. That's the farm system for Congress. And so if you are intentional about getting some of those key local 
um, key local people in place, I think those those are going to be the future candidates for Congress, and that's one of your that's that's an opportunity to to influence thing over the influence the system over the long term. And many, most, don't vote in the primaries and in the local elections unless it's uh, a general election year, right? Right, and that's that is part. I think the people that say uh, people that say I want people to work across the aisle. I want a, a member of Congress who gets things done. Um, I want a bipartisan, someone with a bipartisan spirit. So if, if you legitimately think that, you probably don't vote in primaries because it takes it's an extra day or an extra time that you have to go out, go to the polls, and and vote. Um, but if you're someone who believes that, you need to vote in primaries because right now, primaries are usually filled with voters that are either very conservative or very liberal, and that's why you're getting very liberal or very conservative members of Congress in these safe districts. So if you are, you know, again, if you're a bipartisan someone who wants bipartisan or bipartisanship in Congress, then the primary is the time to, to choose that member. I continue to be fascinated by these interviews that you do for new and future candidates. When you sit down and you talk with them one-on-one, -on -one, do many of them talk about religion? Does their personal faith ever come up in the conversation? Well, sometimes, they, sometimes they'll bring it up. And we, we start with very difficult questions. When we do this, uh, if you if you ever are giving advice to a potential candidate, you can let them know, or someone's listening. We start with difficult questions like, "What's your date of birth? Uh, <laughs> where were you born? Uh, what did your parents do for a living? Uh, where'd you go to college? Where'd you grow up? Uh, those sorts of questions." And sometimes faith will be a part of that if that's part of their family background, but it doesn't naturally come up but sometimes I'll if I think it's if I, if I think it's relevant I'll bring it up for example this is over years ago there was a Democratic uh, candidate from Illinois uh, I won't mention Melissa Bean by name uh, but she came in and sat down and I knew that South Barrington was in the district that she was running in so I asked her about uh, Willow Creek and if she had if, she, if she'd been there or, or anything and she just kind of Looked at me with a blank stare and looked at the the part of her entourage that was with her, and it was clear that she had no idea that one of the largest churches in the country was in the congressional district that she that she was running in. Uh, so sometimes I like to bring up the, my knowledge of uh, of churches or faith and 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 bring those up into the conversation. Or Leith, you probably saw a few a couple issues ago. I was writing about a Pennsylvania district where. Democrats recruited a candidate named Bill Golderer. This is in a suburban Pennsylvania, a suburban Philadelphia seat, and he's a pastor. And I think the Rothenberg and Gonzalez Political Report might be the only place, a political newsletter that's going to try to teach people about the difference between a PCUSA church and a PCA church, and what that means for ideology and politi what political ramifications that might have. So uh, that's. I guess to the extent that it's relevant, I mean, I, I, I bring it up and write about it. However, in presidential, at least primaries, uh, candidates sometimes talk a lot about their religion. And recently, candidates have said, Jesus is the only Messiah, Jesus is my Savior and Lord, uh, who has forgiven my sins. Sometimes that's pretty specific and specifically evangelical. So how does that play out and, and why do candidates do that? I think, I think candidates do it because 
maybe I'm I'm too jaded or or, uh, or too pessimistic at this at this stage, but I think candidates do it because they they believe uh, that there's a political there's a, they can gain a political advantage, specifically in this Republican presidential primary. You know, evangelicals have have gotten you know, more attention than they've received in the last four years, uh, but I think candidates. Yeah, talk openly about their faith because they believe that there is a constituency to be gained there that can be persuaded by talking about that part of their life. And as we've seen over the last weeks and months, I think some candidates do it more naturally than others. Uh, but that's as long as they as long as candidates think that there's that they can it can give them an advantage in the election, then I think we'll we'll continue to see that sort of rhetoric and speech. When it comes to your own politics, and I want to choose my words carefully, I know that you do not describe yourself as uh, bipartisan, but as nonpartisan. And if I've got it right, you've done something that I've always done. I don't ever tell anyone uh, who I voted for or who I'm going to vote for. Uh, so it gives me a little bit more objectivity. It, it, and that's you, I think. So, But you must also have your personal preferences. How do you keep them separate? a great question and, and I think most of my friends and family don't believe I have morals or values anymore uh, because I won't tell them <laughs> I won't take a stance on, on positions and, and if I do it's really just to play devil's advocate with them because I know where they sit on an issue and I've heard the argument from the other side um, I think it's come I think it's just been a maybe a maturation over the years uh, understanding my role in this whole process I think it's fine for people to be passionate about about their views and be open about them and try to persuade people. I just don't think that's that's my my calling. I think my calling is to try to sort through um, these candidates and these races and the politics and try to give people a, a different perspective. And and I just think that's you know one of the one of the verses that that kind of keeps coming. One of my life verses, I guess, is in John 4, 23, 24, with the uh, the Samaritan woman, Jesus talking with her, and he's talking about worshiping in, in spirit and in truth. And I think how I conduct myself uh, is is important, but also the seeking seeking of truth is, is critical. And and uh, I've I've learned that you can you can gain a lot of respect by having that nonpartisan that nonpartisan a role because most people are not that way. They want to beat you over the head, or they have a, with their view, or they have a they have an agenda that they're trying to push. And, and so I, I really I do guard it a lot. And, and there's a business interest in it too because the moment if I'm perceived as being uh, skewed toward Republicans or skewed toward Democrats, then I don't get phone calls returned from the other party, or my sources for the other party view me skeptically and won't and won't give me information. So there's kind of a there's a there's a an inward moral reason for doing it, but there's also uh, I think a business reason for doing it as well. Let me sneak in one last question. What simple advice would you give to Christians, particularly evangelicals, who are in their own congressional district on how they should research a candidate, how they sort all this through the media, and how they make their decision to vote? Well, I think you go online and. The bottom, the bottom line, I think, is to try to diversify your sources of information. Diversify. Don't always go to uh, websites or media outlets that you agree with. 
try to choose one, one or two that, whether it's a local media outlet or a national media outlet, that gives you a different perspective. Because I think that's I think that's healthy. You may not change your you may not change your mind, but it just gives you a fuller picture of what's going on. Uh, I think that you could do that to Twitter, or you can you can um, just have bookmark certain websites that you go to on a regular basis. Uh, I think at the local level, go to go to events, see these candidates face to face. They're they're having town hall meetings or meet and greets, and 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 see them see them for yourself and, and hear from them. Uh, it'll probably take you one level beyond going to their websites and looking at their issue pages, and and that's a that's a way to to really see them from the see them for yourself, and that's what voters in Iowa, and New Hampshire do in these in these early states. I think it's important to vote, you know, vote in local elections, uh, vote because uh, those people are going to be the future congressional candidates, uh, and, and maybe even the future president of the United States one day. And I think my last piece of advice is don't watch too much cable, uh, cable news. I, I don't even call it cable news. Don't watch too much of those the cable entertainment shows on the evenings. I, I just don't find them productive in terms of trying to increase your increase your political knowledge. Uh, get get out of your media bubble a little bit and and diversify those those sources and the voices that are that are coming into your head. Our guest on today's conversation has been Nathan Gonzalez. He is the editor and publisher of the Rothenberg and Gonzalez Political Report. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Nathan. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net. <laughs>